everyone, and welcome to A Nightmare on Fear Street. A monstrous podcast about all things horror. If you like what you hear today, then you can follow us on all of the usual socials or subscribe to our Patreon for bonus content and merch. You can find all of that by visiting us at allmylinks.com backslash A Nightmare on Fear Street or in our episode descriptions wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Today we're covering The Changeling with Richard Rowland. Welcome, Richard. First time guest. Oh, my God. Thank you. I feel um, this is a really big honor because, A, you're both incredible. B, The Changeling (laughs) is the most amazing ghost story ever. I (laughs) love it. I'm happy you're here because I know about this movie because of you. Like, (laughs) when we were talking, oh, my God, two years ago now? Does that math? I think it's two years ago. Pretty much. And I said I was starting a podcast. You were like the changeling. And I was like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love that. It's sort of like, um, it's a secret little gift we give each other. Like these movies that, you know, were supposed to be these big flashes and got totally overshadowed by something else. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. And then they become folklore. And then you're like, you know what I just saw? I just saw the changeling. It's amazing, you know. So I'm glad you took it on. I'm glad you did. Thank you for that. I think it's I think it's a great story. It's a big yes. film all the way around. I yeah, I'm I'd never seen it before. Um I'd heard of the changeling in like the fantasy folklore kind of world, but I never heard of the, I've never seen the film. And I do have a note about that later. But yeah, before we before we get into the changeling, let's 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 Ooh, let get, me... let's get to know Richard a little. Well, yeah, what I'm just going to insert that oh, this yeah. is our second movie in our 70s run. Um, we don't have a real theme for this, but we're just doing 70s movies because chaos reigns. And as a no, child of the 70s, I'm here to say, A, I survived it. B, it was chaotic. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> our lineup for these two months um, is very exciting. Like We opened with Blackula and we went into the Changeling. And we're only going to go bigger from there. So I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, the 70s, were, the 70s were so chaotic. Like, you know, there weren't seat belts. Mom just put a big brick in our lap in the back seat and hoped that we stayed there. You know, <laughs> it, it was, but it also was a very formative decade, I think. Like, if we didn't make the mistakes and egregious, awful things that happened to a lot of people in the 70s and to our land, um, it just was a very depressive time. We wouldn't have grown and learned from that. So it's like, there's, there's, yes, there was a lot. <laughs> I'm gonna reference your your talk about The Exorcist um, and just how you were like, it was the seventies. You just shot your actors that they weren't doing what you wanted. And- <laughs> Right, right. And, and yeah, so I think we, we, we've, we know better now. Thank God. Most of us know better. Uh, yeah, let's not. Yeah, you're right. The, good the three of the three of us do. Right. This is a safe room. Um, we can't speak for everybody else. Right. right. You're absolutely right. All right. Before we get too far into the changeling, let's get to know Richard a little bit because this is his first time on the show. So we start here with everyone. Richard, what is your favorite scary movie? Oh, you know, um, I have to say, well, so many. Okay. The Exorcist. It's 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 just it hits all the right things that scared me as a kid. The supernatural, the devil. Although, and I had read the book, and it's, so it's not it's not really the devil per se. It's a demon which scared me even more. I'm like, wait, there's more. Like they, they 
there's like Satan's not the only one. Like it, it turns out it's it's supposed to be this like uh, Babylonian Sumerian wind demon that I actually saw. I, I went in the British Museum. You can see the little sculpture that Father Marin holds in the beginning of the film. It's in the British Museum. They based that prop on that on that artifact, and it's like you see that. And it's, I just get all chills. It's so good. The acting is amazing in it. Um, it centers a story that could be absurd in anybody else's hands. Within the uh, William Friedkin, controversial director, yes, he did cause some abuse on the set, uh, quite a bit actually. But um, and I'm not excusing that at all. Even without William Friedkin, you have Ellen Burstyn just giving one of the best performances uh, ever. Yeah. And so when you root a horror movie in reality, it scares more of the shit out of me. Yes. No, that, those are my favorites because it's just like, this feels like it could happen next door or to me. I was convinced right. it was happening to me. Like I was 12 when I saw The Exorcist. <laughs> worst, one, of the, one of the worst things my parents ever let me do. <laughs> I was a fearless kid, but I would not touch The Exorcist until last year. Like right. I, <laughs> I was like, horror movies, yay, they're fun, they're funny. I'm laughing, Freddie's cool, and that's my imaginary friend. And I was like, yeah. oh no, I won't watch that. That's too far. I'm gonna parent myself, and then remove yeah. myself. I'm gonna put myself to bed. Um, <laughs> Y'all have fun with that. It's so, deep. Yeah. Oh yeah, especially with the the Exorcist, just has so many layers upon layers upon just everything. It's so it it is it is a fantastic film. Uh, I'm curious though, how do we feel about? Isn't there there going to be a new Exorcist, right, with yeah. Ellen Burstein? Which I'm mm -hmm. that part of it, I'm excited for. I don't know about the rest of it. <laughs> I think it's a reboot, and I think it's a Blumhouse. I, I'm hoping I'm wrong on both parts, but I don't think so. I'm I'm you know I want to I want to be happy about everything and at least give everything a chance. And yes. if Ellen has signed on to do a project, I know she doesn't waste her own time. You know, She's I been think there, done that. she right. paid her dues. She's okay. and side note, her her autobiography and called Lessons in Becoming Myself. It's a really good book because I love I just love her acting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's I, you know, I, I want to give it a chance. I've seen all the Exorcist um, follow ups or prequels as as it was as it were as it is or show. as it were. Which one? Did you watch the show? No, 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 no. Only in only in the movies, though. Like I. Uh, uh, the prequel that another name is gone, but the title uh, that was reshot completely. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know the name either. It's gone. Oblivion or something like that. I don't remember. Um, fascinating about the story that happened to Father Marin before the first Exorcist. But anyway, I just uh, the second one leaves me cold. But I love Legion. I think I just think they're all interesting, and they're here's the This is what scared me as a kid. I know that The Exorcist was based on a real account of a boy being exercised in Georgetown and then in St. Louis. He was moved to St. Louis. And I, when I was working there, I saw the hospital as it was being torn down. And I just, because I do this to myself, I just give myself the big chills as I'm watching this, ho this, this hospital come down. So creepy. Oh my gosh. That's whether so not creepy. It, I know. Whether or not it really happened, I don't know. But like The Exorcist, like The Changeling, are both based on supposedly factual events. That's one of my notes, which made it even creepier because it ended last night. And I was like, let me do a little bit of research. And it was like based on a true story. I'm like, no, no more research. No more what? research. Turn this computer <laughs> off. Go to bed. Right. <laughs> so uh, what's your favorite subgenre? Is it is it supernatural or is there something else? It I, I cheated a little bit because it's it's really because of my years working in video stores, like I got to just see everything. Monster movies slash slashers. Mm -hmm. Uh, specifically the 70s and 80s slashers because 
like to a computer to people was a Commodore 64. Like there was no, there was no connection between animating for film and the computer as, as, as far as I understood it. So every effect you're watching in those films was either by Sam Raimi or um, all their names are going out now, but all those names, those wonderful creators that I would, that you'd read about in Fangoria. Um, I was obsessed with how, I think if I hadn't been an actor, I would have looked into special effects. Yeah. Um, and also just like, I I was sort of like in that masochistic way obsessed with you know being the chaser in the woods or being the chased in the woods like I just I I loved that idea but I never really wanted to put myself in the situation that's a disclaimer just so I'm I'm not really insane <laughs> but, but there's a thrill factor to that whole thing and then of course jaws would be my favorite subgenre in terms of the monster movies because mm -hmm. it's just so well crafted and yeah, the shark, we know it's neoprene and, and metal, but it still doesn't it, stop you from jumping out of your seat when it pops out of the water for the first time with Roy Shatter. It looks real. Like, it looks like a real shark. I don't care who you are. Listen, Call me it, crazy, but it looks like a weird, a real shark. Yeah. Jaws made the water scary like the aliens made, like Alien made <laughs> the sky scary. Like, I don't, yeah. as much as I went off this planet, I'm just like, but how? <laughs> to where? <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, not to Dude, LV twenty LV forty six. Is that the name of the planet? Anyway, yeah, not not up there. Well, if I get on a if I get on a spaceship and Sigourney Weaver comes on, I'm out. I'm like, y'all have fun. I'm out. I love you, Sigourney. Save the day, yep. please. But everybody yep. else died. I'm out. <laughs> yep. If anybody starts bleeding milk in there, you're like, nope, you're you're this a bot. Is. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. It could not have smelled great, and I'm if, I'm so sorry for all those actors. If someone, if I see someone carrying on tubs of lube, I, I'm out. Like, <laughs> well, it's either Mardi Gras or they're setting up for an alien. <laughs> <laughs> what part of the year is it? That's not. I know. Mardi Gras. <laughs> I mean, Alien. All those first two, especially those are um, just. I mean, I go into that psychological thing because yes, it's about the monster and it's about ultimately this actor in a suit, but it's just that sense of being trapped with something. Mm -hmm. Same thing as Jaws. You're trapped in the water with something. You're right. and all both down to Jason in the woods. You're trapped with a a, a a maniac with a machete in the woods. Like it's, I think it's that sense of being trapped that we all don't ever want to experience. But if we can dip our toe into it and get a little bit of the anxiety, the good kind of anxiety from it. I think that's what always draws me to the to those movies. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting that we talked about this a lot when we covered Alien for Charade's birthday. <laughs> we covered six of those and it was a long weekend. <laughs> it was a long weekend. But uh, especially the first two, we talked about how the Alien's not really the bad guy. It's the corporation. Same thing with Joss. But like the Alien's just living his life. Right. People are well, you know. Monsters. <laughs> the, the Nostromo, the Mayflower. You compare. Here we are. Here we uh, are. <laughs> so uh, what is your horror origin story? So does that mean like how I, I, I got in, like I, I fell into it? To the yeah. genre, yes. My father, I owe everything to my father. Um, he died 10 years ago. But it's because of him I even know what the Changeling is. He took me, my mother wouldn't let me see Jaws originally when it opened, but he took me to the opening of Jaws 2. And he was like, you're going to love this. It's great. And in fact, Jaws 2 is, Jaws 2 is one of those weird movies because 
it is a monster movie, but also that was one of the sequels that got it right because they turned it into a slasher film. Mm -hmm. um, and by doing so, they just cast a bunch of teens and one by one, they all get uh, eaten. Uh, yeah. But he took me to see that. He, I would watch old movies with him uh, on like a Sunday afternoon or something. And just like, and he'd tell me all about these like great stories. And, and I just, I fell in love with this genre that he secretly, not so secretly loved. And here's the thing. They wouldn't take me to see The Changeling with him when it opened in 1980. I remember the night exactly. <laughs> I was I was 12 years old, so I was not old enough to stay at home by myself, so we had a babysitter. And then Dad came home and was like, you're going to love this movie. He told me the entire plot of uh, the film. Uh, <laughs> Note from, like, That's so mean. And, but he, because he knew, I mean, first of all, that was pre, we didn't really have, there was no VHS yet. Yeah. And he just knew I was going to love this film. And he told it to me in such detail that I had no imagery for it except what I created. And what I created was in our own house. So my own house became the Chessman house in the Changeling. And wow. I couldn't go to the attic because I was convinced there was a music box up there. Um, and then here's to my surprise. I'm in a blockbuster in college in 1980, no, 1991, 92, 1990. Sorry. I find this blockbuster and all of a sudden there's this video cassette, the changeling. I hadn't even thought about this movie since my dad talked about it. I brought it home, rented it. I, I can't tell you how much that this movie still scares me. And because it was exactly how my father described it. Yet the imagery was really new. And I just, I don't know. So my dad, it's my dad. I love that. It's my dad. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, I love a person who tells a good story. Um, and this is a damn good story. So the fact that he could relay that <laughs> and instill that in you, that's testament And all the twists and turns. And, oh. <clears throat> yeah, he, he was, I mean, every time a scene happened on the film, I was like, Dad described this perfectly from watching <laughs> it one time. So that's that's also the kind of storyteller he was. He, he yeah. is an actor. He was... Um, he had a very keen memory and um, maybe almost photographic, I guess. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of die guy he was. He just would share everything, and it was like him being subversive with my mom. She was like, "He has not seen that movie," and he was like, "Yeah, but I'll tell it to him. I'll tell him every little detail." So <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I love so. that. Um, all right, oh, plug any projects you would like the listeners to know about. Well. Um, uh, you know, I, I I teach. I run the musical theater program at, at Indiana University, and we are doing Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of eighteen twelve this fall that I'm directing. And I happen to love that piece. Um, I think it's evocative, and you know, it's it's a sung through musical, and uh, it em it embraces techno, pop, classic musical theater, all these all these genres in, in, into a story that is how old? I mean, well, 1812. So, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's this, and it's, there's something a little prophetic about it because it's at the time in Moscow, just before Napoleon was going to invade. So there's this sense of like, there's this other that's going to take over this country and the Muscovites, before they let Napoleon do it, they burned their own town down. This is not in the musical, but it, this is all the stuff leading up to it. So there's like this sense of like, I kind of feel that now. Like, yes. I, and, you know, they're coming for us in Indiana. So let me burn it down. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
<laughs> but and actually, but I'm not. You know, there's so many changes in the wind right now that are not in favor of um, democracy and equity. And it's and it's so I feel like there's there's a timeliness of this piece, even though it's about these two people who don't really have much to do with each other in the show, um, but they come together at the very end. Sort of. And anyway, sorry, that's a long story short. Um, I'm directing a musical I've, I've wanted to direct since I saw it in New York. Um, and then I'm directing a, pro, a production of Elf the Musical for the Christmas show for um, Cardinal Stage, which is now called Constellations. Um, so um, that's right now, that's the f- short list of projects coming up. Um, yeah. Reach my syllabus. That's very <laughs> oh, <God>. um, <laughs> If people are in Bloomington um, and they like musicals, which we have like, we have a weird intersection of theater people and horror people because we're theater people and horror people. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah. if you're there, make sure you say hi to the director, Richard. Um, yeah, come on by. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know if social media is your thing or not, but if you want to plug any social handles for people to follow you at, feel free to do so. Real Richard Roland at IG. That's my handle on Instagram. And uh, usually pictures from life, but you know what? I'm a really damn good cook. And I am one of those people. I know people hate, fo- some people hate food posts, but I'm really proud of what I do in terms of that because it's my it's my artistic outlet outside of theater. And I love to cook. So, um, plus I've got some cute dogs too. So they always get some, they always get some photo time up there as well. Um I- I've always thought you, your food, and the puppies should be on food TV, and I don't know how to make that happen and who we talk to. Um, but I would love to be there so I can eat some of the food. <laughs> right. Hey, let's let's get it going because you know I'm not getting any younger, and um, I'm always looking for new projects. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Love it. Um, so right. that's I have I, I I'm a viewer on TikTok. I don't have the I don't have the time. I would love to because I have so many great ideas, but. I l- eventually somebody else gets it. I'm like, yep, that's what I was that's that's the kind of video I was looking for. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I only started using TikTok for my unboxing stuff because I was like, it's a PR thing, so I should do something bigger than a tweet. Um, and then we had to do videos because Instagram won't do photos anymore. Like the algorithm sucks. If you're a content creator and you're listening, which a lot of you are, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the reason you're being assaulted with videos on Instagram is because they push that first, even if it's from strangers. And so like doing videos, we keep visible and we actually get more listens and things now too, which I'm like, Instagram, what were you not doing? <laughs> but here we are. It's called I meta. It's Listen. called meta. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. They don't. They're as lost as I am. What? <laughs> I know. I know. Hand it over to the next generation. Let them take care of it. Yes. Ooh. Listen, it's time. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. I mean, I think just maybe Zuckerberg's aged out, you know, it's just like, it's, it's fair, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to be like, we all get obsolete after a certain time, but like certain things that I know I don't need to be doing with my life anymore. So I'm going to let somebody else take care of that, you know? Right. I think, I think just part of being self-aware is knowing when something is no longer your ministry. Um, and as much as I would love to be like, I'm really 25, not just lying to y'all. I'm not anymore. <laughs> so I need to hand it over sometimes. Like, you know Dre. what? No, it's okay. I'm 26. Oh no. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. I can't be on this. I'm out of here. <laughs> but Dang. I gotta let the babies lead because like yep. they they are doing the work yep. and they know better. And a lot of them are smarter than some of us because we were not, we have to unlearn so much from can do anything because we were taught so badly. Um just how to be people fundamentally. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, precisely. So, and you know what? I also don't look good in international male clothing anymore. So I'm going to let that, uh, that that's, that's for the younger folks. That was, that was a bad eighties catalog joke. So sorry. <laughs> Not coming back though. Like, yeah, right, right. Well, I'll be no. here in like three piece suits with bell bottoms oh. and ascots. Oh. Okay. No. All right. Well, before we get too far into this rabbit hole, let's, <laughs> let's, let's switch gears and talk about the changeling. I just, uh, I love the old-fashioned quality to this. I mean, it's already old-fashioned in the fact that it's 1980, right? Filmed in 1979. But it's to me, it's more old-fashioned than that. This is a throwback to the 1950s and 60s slow-paced horror films. And I say slow-paced in a good way. It, The, the, the direction, the music, uh, it keeps you... The acting, again, George C. Scott is such a grounded realistic actor, naturalistic actor that you're not always thinking, Oh, I'm in a, I'm in a ghost story. This is, this is, this is a story about something happening to this man. It's the time that was taken to put this show, this, this movie together. Um, the actors hired for it, you know, Madeline Sherwood, who plays Claire's mother, um, is this big Tennessee Williams actress from back in the day. She was in the original cat on a hot tin roof. Like, so there, there are actors in this. Um, it, and yes, it ends up being everything. It's, it's a drama. It's actually, a, it's almost a soap opera. I mean, it's, it, 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 it gets a little heightened there, but it has to, it's a ghost story. Um, but that's, I, I, I want to show people when I tell them about this movie, maybe not show them, let them discover it for themselves. Cause that's the only way people really, absorb things is is the time that's taken there's that one moment with that slow pan across the house the way the ghost cam comes down ghost cam i'm sure they did not call it back <laughs> i hope they did <laughs> when the cam comes down the stairs uh and it's the point of view of the ghost or those morning scenes before the banging starts in the um in the house you know it's just i don't feel like there's a wasted moment of film in there no. And, and I think a lot of that, because one of the things that I feel like I have a broken record on the show is talking about specificity and the fact that it, it's smarter to not put all of your all of your things into one thing, but to figure out what is needed and make sure those are are very specific and like the the choices you make with that, like you said, the ghost cam and. The, the acting, no one and everyone felt like they were in the same world because there's so many movies straight out be like, well, that girl, she thought she was in a comedy and this one thought she was in a drama. They, <laughs> yep. they were all yep. on the same page. It's beautifully yeah. paced. You know, I feel like a lot of 70s and 60s and even to some 80s, horror gets a bad rap for just being too damn long. And this one was just right. Yeah. I want to I want to tap in because when you said it was a drama, kind of a soap opera, one of the things I didn't put in my notes, but I was struck by was that this is very much a movie about a man who is grieving his wife and child. And like, I remember they cut to him just like crying before the ghost started knocking on something and how we don't get that. Even like today, men don't really cry in movies. And like when they cry in the real world, we need an excuse for it. We can't just be like, he was having a bad day. He's frustrated. Like somebody yelled at him. Somebody did something to him. And it's like, why can't he just have emotion so he doesn't like do something awful at the Target? Like, why can't we just? (laughs) Yeah. 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 
And so like, I was like, so this is like, it's it's like fucking with like the Babadook and those other like movies about emotions and grief and all of the other good stuff that we usually have to leave the country for. And it was yeah. sitting out here all alone, made in the seventies, put out in the eighties. Right. I and love how, And I loved how that grief was mirrored with the grief of the spirit and like how it has been fucked over yeah. for decades at this point. Seventy years. Right. <laughs> and like I thought that was beautifully mirrored between the two of them, the, the young the young boy and the and the adult man. Yeah. Um yeah, it it and the you're right. I, I love that. I love that you just said that because it 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 is the era of the seventies. It's the it's the post um, uh, Vietnam War, strong male coming back home, and yet, and even though George C. Scott sort of interestingly enough, you know, he's from a lot of those movies. He's, a, he's like the war hero, and and now here he is being this surprisingly vulnerable. Yes, the story's about a man. It's a male centric story. But we see a side we've never seen before. Yeah, you know it's so it's so welcoming and it actually endears you to him that much more. Mm-hmm. It made me lean in because, like, I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of genre, so I'm used to like the cis straight white man hero doesn't cry, tough as nails, badass. And I'm like, this is gonna be boring. And he's like, I'm actually sad. And I was like, excuse you. Yeah, <laughs> should be the first one to tell you that I am here for my female characters usually. Like I am always rooting for the girls. And in this one, I kind of forgot about <laughs> I forgot about all the girls. It made like, him oh, human. Her. Yeah. It made him human and I can work with a human. And I don't think we give that to enough leads in general. Um, but especially yeah. like men, because they're like, men don't cry, men don't have emotions, men don't feel things. Meanwhile, like look at the Supreme Court. It's nothing but like 19 emotions in a trench coat and should have been probably punished a little bit as a child. Um, but in a different situation, this is the youngest I've ever seen George C. Scott. <laughs> it made me yeah. realize how yeah. much of his resume I've not seen. See, he was working forever before this and forever after this. He left us in 99. Mm-hmm. So this was like, he had another 20 years of movies. Um, yeah. And I've not seen most of them, which is wild. Because again, I am I was raised by the television and I'm always in front of a TV somehow, some way. And I'm just like, how do I miss all of these movies? Who am I? <laughs> right. It, yeah, he. it's... Um... It, it, and ultimately, and even though this is a movie about men doing horrible things to other men, you know, it's it's it is male on male violence. It's the father killing the son. It's the spoiler. Um, <laughs> um, but it's you're right. We're we're seeing a man, and and the man himself being trod upon by life. But he's not playing the victim. He's not. He's not making it a pity party. He's actually trying to work through it. Right. And I love that you said it is about man on man violence because it is like straight up kills his son in a bathtub and then goes against another one for some money. But it's also broken by a different man. And so it's like, you can be a different kind of man. You don't have to like <laughs> be the selfish bastards. Mm-hmm. We have plugging up the timeline. You can be mm-hmm. different and you can like interrupt. You can be a cog in the wheel instead. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's kind of a weirdly powerful little message up in there, even yeah. with all the chandelier shaking and wheelchairs rolling after people. It's just um, the, the package is pretty distracting, but there you're right. There's a, there's a message in there. And it's, yeah. you know, well, I, Go ahead. Sorry, Trent. I was going to say, I love it. Straight I've talked about this before, specifically with like um, foreign films that deal with ghosts. I love anytime the ghosts are not the bad guys. This ghost was not the bad guy. This ghost was trying to get justice for what it was done to it, to what, you know, done to it when it was 
killed. And so mm-hmm. I always, I think that always complicates things. And I love the scene where uh, George C. Scott's character, and I can't think of his name, but anyways. Um, John, John Russell. John Russell. John um, is talking to the girl and saying like, this ghost needs me to do something for it. Like I have to, he felt compelled to help this little boy pa- pass on, find peace. And so I, I just really loved that theme throughout this film. I pick up on that the second watch. Um, so like my note last night, I think it's still here. I'm like, why does he just leave the house? It's haunted. But when I was watching it again today, I'm like, oh my God, he wants to take care of this haunted little boy. <laughs> this is a hero. Right. And you know, it's a it's a metaphor for how we should be healing our children instead of forcing them to be these young adults, these little adults. Even in the 1970s, I think, I don't know if that was the conscious message, but I'm getting that now. Like, first of all, what does it say about, well, this is a judgment on the character of the father. Like, you know, um, if you're if you're disabled, then you're not worth anything. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that goes back to the whole like uh, uh, Robert Barron white supremacy men holding down the finances of the of the nation in order to keep that family lineage going it needs to be a healthy strong male mm-hmm. right but also like and then john coming in he doesn't have the chance he'll never see his daughter again right and now he gets to take this little boy and heal him in a way or at least attempt to I mean, and but being you know being a little boy, he heals it, but then the boy is still angry because he's been holding onto that for decades, decades. Yeah, so I'd burn the house down too. I'd be like, (laughs) "Thank you," and boom, bye. You you might want to get out. Right? He let and and he was protecting that girl outside. He was not letting her in, but he let him out. I was like, it was nice. I didn't know that was George C. Scott's wife. Um, Trish Van, is it Devere? Am I saying that correctly? And Devere, yeah. Yeah. Um, apparently they made multiple movies together and it was the longest marriage he had because they were married for uh, right up until he died and they were married before this movie and the other marriages were like five years each. I'm not I'm not shaming anybody because I've not had my first marriage yet, but I, <laughs> I noticed the pattern. <laughs> right. Uh, and I thought that was cool because like... Cool. Usually when people are like, oh, yeah, my wife needs a job, give her a small part. And it's like, oh, or <laughs> like you're the director and your wife is always your lead. I'm not going to name names, but I'm not a fan of that director. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, another theme that I thought was really um, interesting, especially coming from a film from late 70s, early 80s, was the scene when he's confronting the senator and telling him what this is. And then and then later on, the senator realizing that it's true about his father, who he has glorified his, his whole life and thought he was this magnificent person, was really not who he thought he was at all. I thought that was a really interesting thing about, like, we talked about some the generational trauma and generational stuff. Well, I love that. I think it, it's such a commentary on... on um, capitalistic corporate America, um, even though this is crazily a Canadian film, but um, but the, the, the juxtaposition between going to the old Chessman house and then flashing to the scene of that ultra modern building in Seattle, the, the tall white sleek thing, mm-hmm. it's like, that's where all this money has gone to. And I love that, I'm getting a little symbolistic here, but that building, 
I've I've been to Seattle and it's a beautiful building. I call it the Changeling Building. It's it's a big square. It's a big rectangle, but on this tiny little stilt, everything sort of caves in at the bottom. Architecturally, I, I'm not an architecture person, so I don't know what that's called. But you realize how fragile that building looks because it's built on such a small little foundation. I don't know. I think there's so much symbolism and imagery in that moment when we're looking at that the whole um, uh, Carmichael fortune is based on a lie. Yeah, it's yeah. based on based on a, a murder. Yeah, it's gonna come tumbling down, um, and Jack will roll after her. And I I love that. <laughs> I yeah. also just love I also just love ruining people's romantic ideas about their family. Um, and that's a personal me thing. But I think that as a society, we usually are like, moms can be bad, moms can be awful. Meanwhile, dad's right there being the worst, but he put bacon on the table. Uh, <laughs> and that's how men are in a different generation. And it's like, some dads are also just shitty. And we it's okay to say that. Anybody can be shitty. It's equal opportunity out here, y'all. And so I think that <laughs> the more we own that and the more we like, just be honest with ourselves, I think the better we all are as a people. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, it, it sort of, yeah demystifies the yeah. the 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 fact that just because you're my parent you're automatically great and sometimes yeah. they're not my dad was thank god i mean uh, you know it's but so i mean but he's also a human being you know he he yeah. just he had his moments he didn't he didn't kill anybody to replace me with it um <laughs> but, that you know of no that i know of. <laughs> But I do, and you, and Joseph, the actor playing uh, Melvin Douglas, who plays Joseph Carmichael, is defending his dad to the last. He's like, my father was a great man, and then he has that vision, you know that that same that same vision that John has earlier, which I love that that's used twice. Like you get to see, well, actually, it's the first time we actually see it, but we hear. But it's like it. I don't know. There's so many elements about this movie that I just love because it's, um. It repeats certain things without ever feeling like it's repeating the story. But then yes. you see, you see Senator Carmichael see what John had seen in terms of the of the vision. And yeah, it's supernatural. And you could say, well, that's a little bit of a Deus Ex Machina way to end the show. But it's a ghost story, right? This man, and essentially the car, the Senator Carmichael is also he's an innocent player in the story, but. You also have to wonder if he knew somewhere, if he really understood. Like, yeah. if he, you know, is he though? Because he's okay. Because that little, correct me if I'm wrong, but the medallion that he that he finds in the in the whale where the boy was buried, yeah, yeah. is the fake boys from his orphanage that he was adopted from. Right, and you're right. That is a good question because I've often thought about that. You're right, Trent. I think, like, if they buried the real Joseph down the well and replaced him with a boy from the orphanage. Why didn't they just you and try to pass him as Joseph? Why didn't they just use the medallion that Joseph wore? I think that's a question. I've never thought about that. Mm. I thought on the back of it, it said like the orphanage they got him from. Yeah. And like, yeah. Cause and, and he could not have been that young. Like he had to have remembered been like, hey, this is weird. This That's... is off. <laughs> I, I thought it was the baptism medal that they gave him, the original Joseph, and they had a fake made for the fake Joesph. Oh, maybe that's what it is. Oh my god, what a nice and uh, what a nice uh, crossover to the exorcist with the yeah, medallion right? of Saint right? Michael. Saint right. Michael right yeah. yeah. Ooh. 
See, they're yeah. all connected. They're all connected. All those seventies yeah. horror movies, right? We were talking, but he's got. <laughs> he had to have known. Like, there's no way that he just thought, yeah. "My name is now Joseph." I mean, he because that little boy was eight, nine. Yeah, and I yeah. think that I think that that's also very telling because a lot of people, on some level, know when they're being abused or know when something's not right with their families, but they can't address it at that time because um, the way trauma and the body and the mind work, sometimes we are shielded from it. And so you're watching somebody and you're like, you need to get out of here. This is not okay. You're not safe. And they're like, this is the best I've ever had it. And you're like, no. (laughs) And so, yeah, Yeah. I think that he knew it. And that's why he was not wanting to hear John's stories because he's like, no, no, whatever's wrong. I'm over it. I'm past it. I'm a man. It's very. Let me pay you off. I'll pay you. How much much do you want? Right. Oh God. Of course. That's, you know. Because that makes me think too. He's not the first one to ask these questions. Which again, if you are if you are trying to pretend that your dad is an upstanding citizen and you are who you say you are, so things don't Jenga on you, of course you're just like, they all are liars. That also <laughs> that brings to clarity that moment with Minnie, the, the quote unquote creepy woman who works in the historical society. She calls him, he knows, yep. he knows. I love her quote. It doesn't want people. <laughs> and that's when I would have left. If I hadn't already left, that's when I would have been like, it. My house does not want to buy. I guess I don't want it then. There's so many things that happen to John. I'm like, and I get it. Like you said, Sheree, yes, it's about him fixing this child or at least trying to right a wrong. But I don't know. That banging, that would have been, I would have been in a motel six and a half an hour. Just oh. like. I can't do loud noises. The, fir- the first time they pulled up on this house, I said the house is haunted. I would not walk into the house. It is haunted to a T. Haunted with a capital H. Yeah. Right? No, I, I I do love that he was like, it's haunted and I have to deal with my own shit in order to save this kid. But I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. Which again, a moral compass? <laughs> what is yeah. that? Like, <laughs> Yeah, at least they gave him a re- Like sometimes they don't even like give you a reason to understand. They're just staying. So yeah. at least they gave him like motivation to stay there. Yeah. I love the line in all the haunted horror movies where it's like, all of our money is tied up in this house. I'm like, do you not have any friends or relatives nearby? Do you not Do you not have the same broker that got you this house? What, mm-hmm. what has right. happened? What has shifted this week? Like, yeah. <laughs> you could also sell the house just like you were sold the house. Like that. Listen, yeah. totally. If I buy a haunted house, it's not mine anymore. <laughs> it was not yours to begin with yeah uh that it it's and it's one of those movies where you almost want to scream at the screen and just be like dude wait you're following a gurgling sound and taps turning on and off all the way up to the attic in this house and and then you're going to stare at the bathtub see the vision of the floating boy you can't there isn't enough toilet paper in the world for me if I saw that happen. <laughs> right. Also, when we're talking about this house, this house is far too big for one person to live in. This is like, dude. He's, he's a composer on holiday. He wanted a big house and happened to have ghosts. Um, that's and, not his fault. And he's grieving. You know, he, he, yeah. needs, he needs to run around. You know, so the apartment he moves out of in New York is this big, big, big old apartment thing on 79th and Broadway called the, the Apthorpe. And it's got, it's got four elevators in it on each corner. And there's a big courtyard in the middle and each elevator takes you up to a floor. And there's basically one or two apartments on every floor. So, so it's like, so we, 
that this guy's used to filling up a lot of space. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes us, but you're, I always look at that house going, do you have like a ranch, a one story ranch somewhere that I could, I could rent? It's, it's, it is big. And this is what creeps me out too, even more than the stuff you see. The fact that that scene, when he wakes up in his bed and he's, he's not awake just yet, it's about the, it's before the first pounding happens in, in the house. But the double doors are wide open into the like central stairway area. Like, I would have slept in a closet with the door locked. And thank you, Indiana, because now I can't. I would have a gun by my side. Right? <laughs> it just, right? It, it's so like, but that's a testament to the character, I guess. Like, I think that's, that's where I think you're a little maybe hoodwinked by the writers in a good way in that here's this guy. Here's John Russell. Cis, gender, white, straight man who's a composer. And I'm going to be fine in this house by myself. But then they then then it goes back to him having those crying moments and like it's just it, so, so he's not all that. Whether he's trying not to be, but like there's something that he's just he's an unafraid person. Like he just doesn't have very many fears. Yeah, which I do I, like. Yeah, I also I also love that he was a composer because one that gives you the opportunity for a fantastic score, which this is. But oh, yes. also, it's not like your typical cis straight job like you know he's not like a police officer or a doctor or a he's it's 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 an artistic creative job yeah. and so i really like that yep no. yeah it's you're absolutely right it's um it it does it, it's sort of weird that and i i, I want to say the right thing um it takes a very male character and puts it in a very 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 but like slightly perceptibly feminine position yeah. for the 1970s and 1980s sensibilities, you know, artistic composer, grieving, has yes. time to express feelings. Caring. And it doesn't do anything to quote unquote, weaken the character one bit for me. No, like if anything, the moments where he is a little bit angry or the moments where he's like a little bit fed up with this fake Joseph, like it makes you more powerful because it's coming from a place where he is tired and he yeah. knows the truth. And he is like, you have been taking this little boy's life for 70 years. Your father's an asshole. Yep. And I, I have all of my emotions. I am painting with the full Crayola box of emotions. And so we need to have this conversation right now. Yep. <laughs> yep. And it actually takes him a lot to lose his shit. Like when he, when he finally comes back from Carmichael and I think it's from the airport, the airport mm -hmm. scene. And he's outdoor and then Joseph slams all the other doors in the house. And it's like, and then he's like, what do you want from me? Like that's yeah. the one time you're like loses his cool. Yeah. And for a guy that took his daughter's ball from the stairs, dropped it in the Seattle river, came back home only to see said ball come back down the stairs to him again. That Joseph. that would. <laughs> Joseph, put away your toys. <laughs> I, yes, I completely agree. I also loved, I think you alluded to this earlier, Richard, when you were talking about like how everything connected at the end. Like the banging was the little boy banging on the side of the bathtub. The, the water was because he drowned. The music box was what he was thought he was composing, but really was it already, it was, already a song that he didn't know about like it all at the end it all made sense and especially like for me i thought like i i loved every part of this movie but 
once the medium comes in and that scene to the end is like a masterpiece in my opinion i that's my favorite scene in this in this movie is the medium scene and then later on when he revisits the tapes and hears the little boy's voice i that that's from that moment on i was like invested fully completely Yep. That's what Lorraine and Ed wanted, and <laughs> that's what Lorraine and Ed wanted in the Conjuring too, with their moment. And we were just like, "No, this is goofy." Um, they wanted this. They wanted this moment. Of, Let's play it back. Oh my God, I hear the things. As opposed to, why were you so slow with this? Ed, Lorraine, <laughs> this is your first kiss. It's it's a really good scene, and it that scene. There are so many moments in the film that have the potential to, in the wrong hands, would become campy and funny. And not intentionally. Mm-hmm. I just think that Peter Peter Medak, I think that's Medak, Medak. I know he's Hungarian. I, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but the direction of this scene, it's so, first of all, it's that style. It's the style of acting of that late 70s, early 80s that is ultra naturalistic. So it's like half the dialogue feels improvised anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we get to the, the, you're right. Something shifts with the medium there. She elevates everything. And God, that that scene still scares me, but I still get the hairs in the back of my neck standing up when he plays the tape back for the first time. Yes. And you hear, Joseph. Oh, God, it's so good. <laughs> and then he, yeah, and you hear him say, Father, yeah. my room. Oh, once you hear that, actually, the actual boy's voice, yeah. the film, that's, for I think for everybody, that's the tipping point. That's where you have yes. to say, okay, you can't walk away now. No, I, I feel like the medium slash that scene specifically right after, <laughs> right. Um, it makes it a whole other movie. All of a sudden, I feel like we have an urgency we didn't have because, I mean, it was not it was not a slow build. Like, literally, we kill his family and we start hiring him immediately, the first seven minutes. It's on. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> um, but there's something that happens there, and it's almost a different beast. It's like we have now to put this gear into another shift, or I don't drive. Um, and we are, we are speeding down this highway now. And I'm right. like, oh, wow. Well, because, and I think it's because it gave us so many moments of um, hints because he finds the room first and then he and uh, his counterpart research the family that would have lived there in the 1906, I think is when it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they find out the story of the car. It was the Carmichaels, who we also saw earlier at the Simpo, at the. Uh, the concert and the to raise money for the symphony, you know, like everything starts to come together. And then when he said, when you hear the little boy's that because when you hear the little boy's voice say that he died in the house and then it was his father. Yeah. Now everything is starting to click. You got click, 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 click. And, uh, you know, and that's when he has the vision too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see it. And so that's why, yeah, I think that it's like, the bullet has left the the gun at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so well-crafted. Trent, you brought up something interesting because I I think I, I I noted it earlier, but every time I go back to see the film, of course I pick up on something different or depending upon my mood, I read something completely different from it. The past few times I've watched the film, that opening sequence, I'm wondering would I'm going to reference to what you talked about for that opening sequence of The Exorcist, like how necessary is it? And that's a real trend of the 70s and 80s to have this like prologue. I mean, if we, if we, on one hand, if we don't have the faces of the wonderful wife and the wonderful daughter, 
how do we know what pain he's in? Mm -hmm. Yet it's such a, you're jarred from the minute the movie starts. Like you are, there's no ease into the story. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, you know what? It's Steven Spielberg and the opening moments of Jaws. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Even though <laughs> the shark and Joseph have different functions in the story, but I guess putting putting John Russell in a place of trauma and having to find grief in the first two seconds is really important. I just figured something out for myself. <laughs> right? right? No, because it makes him more vulnerable because we don't know who he was before his wife yeah. and kid died. We assume he was a good dad. We assume he was a good husband. But we we don't know. And I'm sure yeah. that as a composer who seems successful, because I've seen his suits, so he was probably always working and maybe not making time for things as a lot of dads or want to do. Because, um, right. again, bread earners. Why are we well, in a society? And, um, yeah, he's, like, being invited to guest lecture at universities. And, no, I think he is a very successful composer. I saw the suits. Like, he – I don't know what he's composing, <laughs> but it was for somebody big. Um, so <laughs> – yeah, and so yeah. I think that putting him in that like moment of maybe being more perceptive and more open because he's in his own feelings and dealing with his own yeah. grief and trauma makes him susceptible to this little boy's pleas for help. Well, and also, also an, an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also love with that opening, I love that anytime, I think when you give us a prologue, you have to give us a new, a different dynamic that we need to see. And I think in that, in this prologue opening scene, we see his joy. We see him love and, and in love and loving on his daughter and his wife and so happy and playing games and, you know, goofing off. And yeah. then that is, take, that is ripped away from him. And I think with, if I hadn't have seen that, I don't know that I would feel as endeared to him. I, 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 you, I, this, this, this helps me make more sense of that because it, it is – Sometimes I'll watch this and I'll get fed up with that first scene. I was like, no family is happy pushing a car in the snow. And I grew up in a station wagon. Those mothers were heavy. <laughs> like there's no, there's no easy way to push a station wagon. Yet they're having a good time. And even though he's got to make, I love that there's a phone booth in the middle of nowhere, first of all. <laughs> um, I mean, I do remember spots as a kid, like there would be an odd phone booth here and there. But so I guess I, I don't question it that much, but today now it just strikes me because what's a phone booth? Um, but even though he's in the phone booth and the daughter's like, let's have a snowball fight. And like, they're making the best of a horrible situation. It's about to get more horrible, but, um, but they just, I don't, I, I, so there's something about that Trent that you just made me rethink in terms of let's take a moment from their life. That was actually a really honestly happy moment and let's not go overboard with it. And then, like every tragic event in life, something it's it's going to come so suddenly, and it's just yeah. It thank you that that makes me rethink that scene because I often get a little frustrated with it. Yeah, yeah. They were on their way to the Overlook Hotel, <laughs> and, and Dick Halloran was going too fast in the snowcat, and he ran over them. Thank God they didn't make it there because that would have been a whole other story. It would have been so much worse. It's it's Danny and and um uh. Uh, oh, what? What's her name in the movie? Wendy. Um, Wendy. Wendy. <laughs> Wendy. Of course, it's Wendy. Um, it's them speeding down the mountain, getting away from it. They're they're, 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 they're like, nothing good up there. I gotta go. Look. I gotta get out. 
<laughs> oh, yep. She's out. She's like, don't go up there. <laughs> You're still going. Okay, I gotta run you over because you can't do it. Right. But there are so many. I mean, I don't know if if you want to talk about this now, but I just there are so many similarities between Shining and Changeling. Yes. So yes. many. Centered around a father. What 70s movie wasn't, unless it was, you know, um uh, uh a good film. Um <laughs> sorry. Sorry, I mean that, don't mean it, slash, let's move on. Um <laughs> but it the father, each father is struggling with something. Large Grief, homes. Alcoholism, large homes, yes. um, child in the middle of the story, dead or alive, you know, ghosts, yeah. they're 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 part of it. Um, it's funny, but there is no mother there, yeah, exactly. That there's no mother figure in in the in the in the changeling. You know, she's yeah. she's gone, she's yeah. she's evaporated. And there's no mention of Joseph's mother. Like that's just not even part of the picture. Like it's it's all about it's all about the the masculine. the masculine side. The um, what's the word? That's about the patriarchy. Right, right. Because I wondered about her. Because I mean, again, I'm not a maternal person, but I think that if my son went missing, I would be like, hey, didn't I have one of those? Hey. Um, and so well, I don't know. Okay, this I mean, is really interesting because this brings me back. This brings me to my one of my final notes is the links between. The, the plot of this film and the actual like fantasy folklore legend of the changeling, which essentially it, from what I know, and I could be, I could only hear one part of it, but like the changelings were fairies that they would come and steal your baby and then give you a change, give you a fairy baby instead. And the mother would typically be the one to be like, this is not my child. Where is my child? And so I thought that was really interesting in flipping that on its head, but also still connecting it to it with the father literally killing the son and then replacing him with another son. Um, so I thought that was a very cool way to do that. It, it is. And also, I mean, the mother is mentioned only in the fact that she carried the wealth line and that the son, the none of the fortune was going to go to the father, but the father could be in trust of the son until the 18th birthday mm. but the money the mother it's interesting the mother was actually in control of the money she probably got none of it but it yeah. it, it passed through her yeah that's that so that is the one time the mother is mentioned so either she's a silent partner in this or she was forced to be you know i don't know in my mind, I told myself that this father was trash from the beginning and he killed her thinking he would get the money and then they read the will and it was like, the son gets the money in 18 years? He's not going to make it. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's the prequel. It is. Oh. I'm going to write that. <laughs> I'm be like, hi. <laughs> because yeah. like, otherwise, I feel like she would have popped her head in once or twice to be like, are you drowning our son? <laughs> like, Who's this new kid? But yeah. she was not. And so I'm because again, like the father went away to wait for the son to inherit this money. So it tells me that she must be dead. And I'm assuming he did it. Yeah, he went to Europe for a number of years and just like, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, nobody, I'd love to know, at least in, uh, in uh, Russell Hunter's mind, like, what was the mother doing? Where was she? Like, you know, um, all the questions he may not, might not be ready to or able to answer. But, um, uh, you know, <sighs> I don't it it the similarities between Changeling and, and Shining are kind of amazing considering they were being produced in two different countries. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if people chattered back and much uh, back and forth as much as we do now. But come on, the ball moving all by itself in both movies. Um, uh, the bathtub, a dead person in the bathtub, both films. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said before, Trent, a giant building that people are in, like feeling trapped in a very large space. Um, I don't, there's so much, I don't know. I just feel like there's so many little nods to each other. And yet, I don't know. Change, Shining took it all and because it, it was bigger and flashier. And, you know. I'm upset about it. We'll get to our thoughts on that in a little bit. But... <laughs> but uh yeah and and the the um another theme i i didn't note about earlier but like the sort of trend towards children as the source or the center of a horror story in the 1970s yes it really i mean it it doesn't start with the exorcist but that's when it goes like to like it's full exposure like this is children are scary because they're unpredictable and they're especially children around puberty because they're uncontrollable. Yes. And so we have the exorcist, we have the omen, we have uh, two years after, uh, well, changeling, shining, poltergeist. It's like this whole slew of children as a source of horror. I just find that fascinating. Like, I've always wondered, I've not done enough research or asked any questions, but it's a thing I've always just wondered about is I wonder if part of the reason children in the 70s were so big in horror was because of Roe versus Wade happening in like 73. So were we just mm-hmm. like, we can't talk about abortion because we're in the 70s, but also if you make women have children, some of them are Damien. Well, <laughs> and then you, right. And then you had, you know, 68 oh. with Rosemary's Baby, like yes. as a precursor yes. to all of these children horror yep. films, you know. Yeah. And how much of that, I'm wondering, I'm just not, now I'm putting on my, like, my history nerd hat. How much of that is a reflection on, on the feminine mystique and, and, Mm. and the the feminist wave of the 1960s? Like, you know, you know, the, the, you know, families are broken, single mothers. Oh my God. They're, they can't be trusted. They're sleeping with everybody and they're creating demon children. And Yeah, I, I wonder I wonder if, because I know that like a lot of horror usually is reacting to the time it's made, like most art. I said horror, like that's something special. Like all art, <laughs> if it's good art, is usually reacting to when it's made and you it feels like a time capsule, which I say a lot on this show. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if like these people who are making movies were like, I don't really know a whole lot about it. I'm not going to research on the internet. But like, I feel like all these like... <laughs> Things are important. I'm going to write about it. Yeah. Like, here's a kid who doesn't have a mother and is drowned. Or here's a kid who is like given to a woman after we drag her with tennis root. Um, and she didn't want it. And like, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I, I'm seeing a lot of it pop up now. There's a show I need to finish on HBO Max, or it was on HBO Max last week. I don't know if it's still there. Called The Baby. <laughs> um, and I just watched a very terrifying episode from it um, a month or two ago. So I had to like pause. It was really, really good, that episode. But I was like, yeah. this is too realistic right now. Yeah. No. Um. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I, I think I, I, I'd, love, I'd love to do more research into that just to like figure out like why. Yeah. Is, is it, it, was it the fear of a broken home? Like that's not normal. So your children are going to be awful if you're divorced or even worse, if you're widowed, you didn't find somebody else. You know what? 
what's wrong with you? You know, are we still holding on to that that nuclear family idea at that point, or am I overthinking it and just thinking that well, children are creepy, which is why I don't have any. So, um, <laughs> uh, it's but there's something about and maybe it's just the fantasy of giving a child look. I think we're seeing it now. We can be totally enamored with the younger generation, or we can be totally terrified by them because there's power, you know, and what powers is Reagan McNeil actually displaying? What is the threat? What is the threat from Damien? What is the threat from Carol Ann? What is the threat from Joseph Carmichael? In Joseph Carmichael's place, it's truth. And it's, it, and it's, mm. um, it's repairing the past. Like those ghosts will haunt. I mean, we see that everywhere right now. And these ghosts are coming after us. Those that those little medallions are working their way up through the earth and coming back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah I, feel, I feel like it's really interesting to watch, especially with someone with a, with a story like Joseph's it's, you know, paying for your paying for the sins of your father, which you probably knew about, but like, and, 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 yeah, making making it making the history right, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just also yeah. I just want to sorry, one other thing for we to try and leap into hot takes. I just think it's also fascinating to have this respectable man who's a professional and is in the seventies, and we see him having emotions and like grieving, like we don't often see. To see him believe a victim because like that is still a rarity in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Yes. I'm shaking my head in a very <laughs> agreeable way. And it's, I just feel like, and, I, and you know, I don't think I would clue into that maybe the first hundred times I saw it, but like, of course, in the past 10 years, I'm like, oh, he's, he's listening. Right. He's like, he's asking the question, how did you die? How did you die? And he's not satisfied until he gets the answer, which makes him faint and fall off the bar stool. But, you know, but, you know, when, you, when we have those awakening moments, I thank you. I might shit myself as well. <laughs> I, well there's that, and you know, this again, uh, not enough toilet paper in the world for me to experience right. that 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 thing. But it is there's such a there's such a great metaphor about healing the past, and from our point of view now, it's couched in this very 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 white upper middle class story, but I think it speaks to so many things about how we need to we can't go back in the past but we can fix things we can and maybe not fix in terms of like making it right but at least acknowledging and giving information out like hey you know that's not yours right or that how that, can it be better in the future how can we and how can yes how can we avoid this how can we not avoid it how can we prevent it and just not do it um how can we not let greed actually make a father kill a child whether that's a metaphor for eradicating an entire uh, culture or um, a, 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 a town or neighborhood, but, or literally my son is getting in my way of my success. So you're gone. Like well, in the view, in the views on the disabled as well, you know, how, yes. how can we better support a, a marginalized community that is often forgotten about in the larger conversations you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah and you know and the, the movie's not upholding that point of view but it's depicting a generation that upheld that and just said mm -hmm. may and maybe the movie's saying look 
if your child has it has to be in a wheelchair for the rest of their life, so be it. And they're going to be a powerful senator in a wheelchair for the rest of their and life. They can have dignity and they can have everything that they deserve to have. And like I think that too, one of the things that makes this film so successful is how visceral that scene is. The vision that he has, and when the when later on the guy has the same kind of vision but sees his father doing it, like it is disturbing to watch. Like it is difficult to go to get through. But I think if it weren't that visceral, it would be it wouldn't be as effective as a full film. I wouldn't. Want, I'm glad it only is only like what two or three minutes. It's not only like that, just that one scene. It's like and it's cut in such a way you're not actually watching the whole thing you're watching like sections snippets of like you're like it's like if you were there what would you be focusing on and and it's not you're it's not gratuitous we don't we don't see mm, anything that doesn't yeah. need to be there yeah but you are watching a child being murdered on screen i mean not really it's not a snuff film i hope um but it's it does it takes you there it has to we can't i think you're right trent i'm going to take this back to what that opening scene you know Sometimes I think to myself, how would this read if it were a play? I want to see this on stage. Continue. So, so if we see this on stage, how do we deal with the imagery? How did the how do what happened to John before moving to Seattle? How is that depicted in a monologue? How is the death of Joseph discussed? You know, is that is it all? Do we go back to words? We certainly. I mean, a reenactment on stage that's a little laughable. You know, um, going dangerous too for a child. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I, one of my thoughts is that I wanted to see it on stage. I added it to my list of movies I would love to see adapted for the stage. I don't know how to get all of the things in there, but I think enough could be in there to where it would be a good time with the right. I think there's ways to right. do it creatively and abstractly, maybe. I don't know, but I think there's definitely a way to do it. I think, um, I would love to see this. I would love to see somebody be bold with this and put it on stage. And I also, uh, my, I go right into opera with this. Yes. Mm. I think yes. to turn it into musical theater, I don't know that that's the genre for it. I think it needs opera. I think this and the Babadook did not keep harping on that one, but I think both of those will work very well on the stage. Like me and LaBob joked about putting the Babadook on stage, but we didn't never investigate rights because we don't have that money. Um, <laughs> but like we talked about it. I think the changeling is totally doable because you can do certain special effects. They, you know, you get this great set. Um, it can be abstract, it can be real, whatever, but um, you have the element of music anyway. He's a composer. Like you said, it works so well for the score of the film. Why not take it even further? Maybe the story changes to where he's an opera composer. Like that's that's that sets up the story, and that yes. and that we actually hear the ghost. Well, maybe we don't. Maybe the ghost is the one that doesn't. It's not. It's an instrument that plays. I just yes. want. Can I, I? My husband did a concert of of uh, a very short story about the widow of the Remington rifle. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't hear your yeah. The one you wrote about. The big house. That, she yeah. built a house and had the stair had stairways built that didn't go anywhere because she thought the house was haunted and she was she thought it was the ghosts of all the people that had been killed by her husband's guns. Oh wow! My husband did an opera version, a short opera version of this at a, a in New York years ago, um, and the voice of the ghost was done on a musical saw, oh. and it was, I thought. Brilliant. So there's an element. I don't know. Sheree, we're going to talk about turning this into an opera. Let's Trent, do it. Let's Trent, do it. 
We heard it here. We're doing it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, love I think it. it's time because it's a really good script and it's got a lot of stuff that like we can still be unpacking today and should be unpacking today. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Uh, I think it's the move. Agreed. Love well, it. on that note, let's get into some hot takes. We've kind of hinted that we all have very similar hot takes. This is the first time all three hot takes have been basically the same hot take in a different <laughs> wig. Just so we're all clear. <laughs> yes, right. yes. All right, but uh, uh, Richard, you go with yours first. I'm going to be the first to say it. I'm sure a lot of people agree, but I also know people who don't agree with this. It's the better movie of the two. It opened in March of 80, and Shining opened in May of 80. Shining had the studio behind it. It had Stephen King behind it. It had Jack Nicholson. Um, I would say cinematography-wise for both, I think they're in direct competition with each other. I think there's beautiful imagery in both films. And The Shining rests more on Jack Nicholson's shoulders than The Changeling does in the actual storytelling. Like, uh, I'm sorry, on 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 uh, George C. Scott. George C. Scott is a presence in The Changeling, but he's also the rock. Mm-hmm. There is no rock in The Shining. In fact, no. the steady performance is uh, Danny. Yep. Yes. I mean, he's he is like, and the story's really not about Danny. It's about the decomposition of Jack whereas John has already gone through his decomposition in the changeling with through grief and he's trying to build himself back up mm-hmm. and I just think it's a better story in terms of where we're going but I can't argue with Stephen I think Stephen King wrote a brilliant story for the show that movie and uh and you know I I, I won't well I and yes I and I, I think Kubrick's adaptation does good things for the story in terms of getting the essence of the story going. Unlike the, like I, I, that's another story. That's another part. You have to bring me back. Cause I'm going to talk about, I have a theory that Stephen King literally does not translate from book to screen okay. word for word, you know? Um, but in the way that Kubrick adapted shining for the screen, I think that's what people wanted to see then in the way that, Brian De Palma adapted Carrie for the screen and made it a different story. And I think it works really great on screen when they did the, that remake of Carrie more close to the book. It just doesn't work anyway. So the fact that the changeling is about, like we said before, it's about the human side of the character. We're letting, we're seeing a man grieve. We don't see Jack grieve in the shining. But just in terms of, um, I don't want to get too deep in that. So what I'll go back to is that I think The Changeling is a scarier story. Yes. And I think the, the Shining is a great story based in, it's a big question mark. Is this really happening or are we, are, is Jack just crazy? Like The Changeling is like, this is really happening. Mm-hmm. We're solving a murder mystery and it's told, it's wrapped up in a ghost story. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I just think it's the better movie and it just got totally overshadowed. Which makes yeah, me sad. Um, my hot take. <laughs> how, did, how, did, how did you word it? <laughs> Listen, I, I said, and I quote, I was also coming here to say this is better than The Shining. Um, <laughs> I also bet a lot less actors were abused. Um, <laughs> uh, but what do I know? I'm just yeah. here. What? <laughs> yeah. And surprise, my hot take is this movie is what The Shining wanted to be. Because the... I 
and, I, and I'm saying The Shining, the film, not the book, because I think they're two very different things. Yep. I hated Jack in The Shining, the movie. Hate him. From beginning to end, in the middle, there's no redeeming quality to Jack in the film. No, I love Jack Nicholson. This is no shade to him as an actor. It's the script he was given. Stanley he Kubrick an, was projecting. Oh. He is an what? asshole from the opening of that movie to the end of that movie. There is no complexity to him at all. In this one, he is complex. He is vulnerable. He is strong. He, he goes through every part of the human emotion. And you just did not get that with Jack in, mm-hmm. in The Shining. This it, this movie is by far better than The Shining, and I'll die on that hill. <laughs> no, I, that's I'm I'm on that hill with you, Trent. I think the fact that uh, there is no bad guy in the Changeling, aside from the bad guy died years ago. That was the father who he killed. And yes, living on through the sins of the father is Senator Carmichael. So yes, he would be the bad guy because he's been holding us. But he's not actively like slashing people or pushing them down wells. It's there's no bad person. In The Shining, it's like, I, and I love Jack Nicholson, but I also like, oh, could you not play the ending of the movie at the beginning of the movie? Um, it's just there. I also I also think that Kubrick probably let Jack do whatever he wanted. And. I think he- I think he insisted he do it that way because we know enough about Kubrick to know that that version of Jack is not unlike <laughs> what we get yeah. Kubrick was like. And so he's like, of course you're gonna yell at your wife. Of course you're gonna flip this shit. And yep. Jack Nicholson's like, I will always go 200, but also I guess this is all I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, there's no surprises in the in The Shining. No, really. I mean, you you know. I mean, there's a couple of chill factors. You know, the evil, the little twins in the hallway, all still to this day, they always that's it's so well done. Uh, but the changeling is dead lady in the bathtub. The shining is full of these surprises, and it does it in an old school way, which proves that old school is not bad. You know, that tension rises, the score comes in, it tells you something's about to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. Oh my god, there's a boy floating in the bathtub, like it's. It's the shock value is real and it's not gratuitous. I brought that word up twice today. Sorry, but it's, <laughs> but I, I, it's just, there's a slickness to the shining that, that the changeling avoids. Mm-hmm. It's just telling a story. It's a little rough around the edges. It's, um, it's actually more seventies than the, than the shining is to me. Yeah. To me, seventies lives in sepia and it's a little dragon. Um, she was out way too late the night before. And it's, it's, uh, there's something just earthbound yes. about the changeling. Um, it's, it's real. It feels yeah. like a real story. And I, I love that you said that there's no bad guy because that again plays with like why this is still very relevant because like the bad guy is gone, but the system is in place. You did these things and people are living with these circumstances, which is mm-hmm. a lot like most of the systems when you just go and burn down and restart like student loans, <laughs> our healthcare situation here. Yeah. Um, maybe the Supreme Court or what they acting. Um, we have so many systems that we, we are still living with what was done and we've inherited it as opposed to being like, it doesn't serve us anymore. Well, and absolutely, Shrey, I love that. It's like, it's because now we have these corporations that are too big to fail. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. This movie is commenting on it way before we even had that conversation. This, so, we have billionaires where people can't have food <laughs> and people are being forced to be unhoused every almost other day. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a year three of a pandemic and a government gave us two stinnies. <laughs> like, 
We're all struggling, and yet we have billionaires offering themselves to different planets because they yep. can. Right, right. They're literally the. Uh, that's the, how many more podcasts yeah. can I come on to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. But you know, and I know this sounds crazy. Because when I'm alone at like two in the morning and I hear noise, I don't want to think what I'm about to say, but I so want to believe in ghosts. I want to believe that there's a way that we can leave something behind of ourselves that can let somebody know what something was. Or, I mean, ghosts come, to me, ghosts might not be something that's hovering in the corner that looks like mist, but I'll tie this back to my dad without making it sappy, but my dad has come back to me several times in my dreams. And to me, that's a ghost that, that is like, and, and it's so, it's so tangible and real every single time. Two days after my father passed away, my sister and I had almost the exact same dream with our dad in it. And we live across the country. So it's, I, there's something there. And I, and I, and I know that we can't explain anything that goes on in the next realm of whatever that is, but I so want to believe in ghosts and I want to believe that they're not out to get us like, you know, the Satanist creature that ends up being in poltergeist too. But I want to believe that part of poltergeist where people get stuck somewhere and they don't know where to go. And, you know, those ghosts in poltergeist, they're angry because they were fed some bad information just as Joseph is angry because he was, his life was cut short and, you know, well, I was going to bring something to the exorcist, but the exorcist, that's just the devil. He's just always pissed off. Right. Uh, he's always in a bad mood. He's always in a bad mood. Uh, once my Come name on. was Lucifer, I was the bringer of light. I was good. And now I'm I used asshole. to be beautiful. What? <laughs> but it does. It, in a horrifying way, I, again, and I've had moments in houses where I'm like, please, God, please don't let there be ghosts. Please don't let there be ghosts. But. <laughs> Yeah. But I want to believe. I want to believe that. I want to believe that there's a connection with the past, and maybe that's us inherently, or at least me inherently, being like, "Oh, we've made mistakes. How can I correct that mistake in the past? How can I acknowledge yeah. that mistake in the past?" I think it's human. I think that's why we have religion. You know, I think right. that's you know whether or not you prescribe to certain religions. I think that's why they're there. They're there to answer those inherently human, bigger than life questions that we'll never we'll, we'll never have answers to. So, but yeah, I agree with you though. 100%. I mean, I know it's creepy, but kind of want to do a seance. <laughs> I know it's just. I'm it's, not gonna go that far. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna bring the Ouija board out, but uh, I think. Oh, can I can I drop this little bit of weird trivia in? My aunt was an automatic writer, and that's what that's what's happening in the seance. Yeah. Yeah. So she would do that. She would go in, into these trances and write, and her her portraits hanging in this house. She. Okay, real life ghost story story. My my husband and I moved into my aunt and uncle's house when my aunt died and we bought the house from him. My grandmother had lived in that house and um, we would hear, she's a piano player and voice teacher, we would hear the piano tinkling at night and not just random notes. And But it didn't scare me. It made me feel like, I feel, feel like I never, because I never met her. So I sort of felt like this weird little, and I don't know. My dad used to have stories about how he and she would do this little thinking game with each other, slash, I don't know, not shining. I'm not, I don't want to get too crazy about it, but like you grow up hearing these stories, and I don't know how much of what my dad made up or not, but I think we've all had little experiences like that in life to where you can't explain it. And so we call it supernatural, but supernatural doesn't mean kooky. No. 
It, it just means things that are not explainable, which is a lot of things. Yeah. Like I've definitely lived in some haunted houses, which is why I don't play with things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what kind of spirits there were. I'm happy to let me live. And that's all yeah. I know about that. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I know it's, 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 and I, and I, I think that's my belief in energy and what we create in terms of what comes out of ourselves. Energy is electric. And I think we create stuff that hangs out there. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's why all, the three of us and most of the people we have on the show are all artists in some way, shape or form, writers, Thank directors, you. actors, performers, musicians, you know, we want to leave something of ourselves to the, for the world. And I love that. But Makes total sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, love it. Yay, changeling. <laughs> yes. Well, that is our thoughts on the changeling and many, many, many other things, as is most episodes here on Fear Street. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us for this fantastic oh episode. Thank you, Trent Sheree. This has been like, I just geeked out. I haven't done this in a while that didn't involve Stephen Sondheim. So thank you. This is. <laughs> This is really, really wonderful. I'm honored that you wanted me to be here. So thank you. Like it just, it felt right. Because again, I only know about this movie because of you. And because I mentioned it in so many circles of horror people. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, clearly this is the right movie. And we hate to right. have the person who like introduced it to us. Um, yes. Plus I've not uh, seen you in forever. Because I know. Pandemic years. <laughs> I know, I know. Pandemic yes. and uh, craziness. But can you can you have me back? I would love to come yes, back. I, I was going to say, so especially when we get to Jaws two, which because Jaws yeah. we already have a, we already have a guest for. Yeah, but yeah. Jaws two. Weirdly enough, the guest we want for Jaws, um, his sister got him hooked on the first one, and so we're gonna have a whole little like family situation for these first two. <laughs> like, <laughs> we get both of you and your schedules to line up whenever we do this. Yes. Love it. And, you know, and Jaws two is not talked about nearly as much as Jaws is, and I get it. Jaws is revolutionary. It's why we have the attack scene in the first moment of every of every horror movie now. Like it's, you know, Psycho doesn't start with the attack scene. Psycho starts with a bank, not bank robbery, but um, you know, like. Yeah. Spielberg Something changed else. that storytelling for us. And even where Peter Medak or uh, 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 Russell Hunter writes the trauma scene at the top of the Changeling. So in a way, Changeling's like, thank you, Jaws. Right, yeah. Um, yeah so thank you so much for joining us. Next week, we'll be covering Ganja and Hess with Ash from Rise from the Dead. Because uh, we're going to keep parking in the 70s and see what happens. Will we find John Travolta here? Probably. Uh, <laughs> will we find other 70s stars? More than likely. Um, it's a good time. Get your bell bottoms. Get your <laughs> get your Saturday Night Fever. Um, and come and see us next week. Yes, yes, yes. Again, thank you, Richard. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And as always, make sure you stay fierce out there. Bye. Bye. <laughs>